Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, my friend Alison Benny joined me to discuss the impact that a recent diagnosis of adult ADHD had on our life. This week, I want to do something a little different. We're at the beginning of the year, and for many of us, this is a time where we think about setting goals and we're making new plans. Now, a big topic of the podcast is how we measure success. Over two years of conversations, my guests have given me many definitions of what success is to them. Some are personal, some are business-based, some are for individuals, some are for companies, some are short-term, and some are long-term. So, for today, I am going to first share some of my thoughts on how I think about success and give you a framework that maybe you can use yourself. And then I will share some of the answers from my guests that I have found inspiring. Hopefully, their insights will provide a spark and maybe a different perspective to those of you who are going through the process of setting goals for the new year. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. This is a little strange because normally when I record these episodes, I'm talking to somebody. But what I want to do is share a few thoughts that can help as a framework as you think about how to define success as your goals. And then, as I said in the intro, I will share pieces, some segments from some of our guests as to how they think about success. So, first of all, I want to make clear that when we talk about definition of success, there is no right or wrong definition in terms of the specific of what it is that we define as success. As long as it's legal, ethical, you're free to define success the way that works best for you. So for some people, success may be defined from a very professional career-oriented basis, you know, wealth accumulated. They may say success for me is making a million or a billion dollars, maybe wanting to be a CEO or a rock star or an influencer. Now, on the other side of the range, we have people who define success in a more personal way. For them, success is being able to have free time for themselves, hang out with their family, travel around the world, or have time to learn things that they are passionate about. There may also be a definition of success that is tied to the impact you have on others. You know, teaching people, making the world a better place in general, helping people in need, fixing the environment, whatever. So I'm not making any moral judgment on the specifics. All of these definitions are perfectly fine, and none of them is really better than the other. But there is a way to think about having a right or wrong definition of success. And that is that a right definition of success is a definition of success that fits you. It's a definition of success that is driven internally and not externally. So I want to talk about what I call the two traps of an external definition of success. Now, this is not based of science or proven theory around these traps. It's just my personal experience, observations that I had made of people along the way. And, you know, when I get in trouble in my life or when I have seen people around me get in trouble is when success was defined based on external forces. So there are two main traps that I think about as the traps of externally defined success. The first trap is to define success based on the definition for others. From the beginning, we have a lot of pressure around that. You know, it could be the expectations that our parents or our family have for us. The classic, my parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, or maybe there's an expectation that we should follow in the professional fields our parents are in. 
as we grow, the pressure shifts into how our peers and the institution that we're a part of think about success. You know, I started my career in investment banking, went to business school, and then joined a consulting firm for a while. In those environments, success was measured primarily in terms of your career. Which school you went to, how quickly you were promoted, the title you had, the wealth you accumulated, the bonus you got at the end of the year. And you were encouraged to wrap your identity almost exclusively around that. I bought into that and lived it for a long time, even though it didn't necessarily fit me. And it led me to some struggles at different points in my life. So to summarize, the first trap of externally driven definition of success is using a definition that is based on someone else's definition and doesn't fit us. The second trap of externally driven success, it's somewhat related to the definition created by others. It may even be defined as a component of that or something that is partially internally driven, but still connected to that. And it is the idea of measuring our own success in relation to other people's success. Now, this is also a very common and natural way to think about success. We're taught from the beginning about competing with others. We participate in sports. We are ranked based on our grades in school. We are divided in groups based on level of ability, and we're told that certain groups are better than others. And honestly, who does not want to be in the better group? We're also taught to look at successful people as examples. We're told we should emulate and follow them. So we're naturally driven to think about where we stand in relationship to others. And we're always told to shoot for number one. Now, that's great if you end up being number one and being in one of those two groups. However, if everyone is trying that success come only from being number one or winning it all, we're actually mathematically creating a world where the majority of the people is feeling unsuccessful, unhappy with themselves. So when we measure our success in relationship to others, most of the time we fail to appreciate everything that we accomplished because all we focus on is the gap ahead of us. Now, I wanna be really, really clear. I am not advocating for not having ambition. As a matter of fact, ambition is great and we should all have drive and ambition. All that I am saying is that using our position in relation to others is not a healthy way to measure success. And this is why I call this the second trap of measuring success based on external factors. There's also another really important part in the idea of not measuring success using external definitions. And let me state again that this is not driven by science. It's driven just by empirical observations throughout my career. When you look at the people who achieve really high external success and you analyze what drives them, you will find that at the root of every action is a definition of success that is internally rooted and that it is consistent with their values. Specifically, it's a definition of success that is not measured primarily by the two normal standards that we like to track, which is professional status and financial rewards associated with that status. It doesn't mean that wealth and professional status are not a component of their definition of success, but there are more markers for a broader definition. When I think back of my career in investment banking and consulting, I now realize that the people who achieved those measures of success that I thought I wanted were not driven by external rewards. The best example I can think of is the managing director who actually wrote my business school recommendation when I wrote at Lehman Brothers. For those who don't know the history of Lehman Brothers or maybe only know it as the bank whose crash started the 2008 mortgage crisis, before the time, Lehman had a really long and respected history. It was founded in 1847, and it was one of the most important and biggest banks in the US. 
As a matter of fact, it was the fourth largest firm in the US when it failed. Between the late 70s and the early 90s, Lehman went from being a privately held partnership to a merger with Shearson, an acquisition by American Express, and then, and this actually happened while I was there, an initial public offering. For those not familiar with professional services, every time there is a transaction of this nature, people who are at the partner or managing director level accumulate a very significant amount of wealth. So the managing director that I mentioned was a partner at the time of the Shearson merger and stayed through all the following transactions, which means that he could have stopped working at any point after that. And yet he was still one of the people who worked the hardest and went on to more jobs at different banks and is probably still working right now. To me, that is because his definition of success and his drive came from the satisfaction that he derived out of the work rather than just from the rewards. And the fact that his success and satisfaction came from the actual work is what gave him the stamina and the drive to ultimately achieve the type of rewards that he accumulated. So to summarize this first part, as you think about success, both in your personal and professional world, think about how much of your definition is driven by you internally, consistent with your values, and then how much of that definition is coming from the outside. The more you're able to have success defined internally, the likelier you are to find internal consonants and then ultimately long-term overall success. I want to conclude this part by acknowledging that this is not easy to do. So you shouldn't feel bad if you're struggling with it. Personally, it took me until my late 40s and early 50s to make that shift. And the reason why I'm so passionate about it is that it led me to some significant struggles in my mid-30s. So hopefully you will not have the same struggles that I had. So with that, we can move to another important component of thinking about your definition of success. And that is that your definition of success will change as you progress through your life and your career. We're listening to all my conversations with my guests. I noticed something. As people's definition of success evolved through their career, the changes followed a pattern that was very similar to the hierarchy of needs outlined by Maslow. And that framework is something that may be helpful to you as you're considering where you are in your career and how you want to define your success and set your goals. So I'm going to oversimplify Maslow a little bit here. If you think about his hierarchy of needs, at the bottom are what he calls basic needs, physiological needs such as food, sleep, water, and safety needs, shelter, security, order, and stability. The next level of needs are what he calls psychological needs, love and belonging, which are our connections with friends and family, and then the esteem needs, which is being recognized socially for what we have accomplished. Together, these four levels of needs are considered deficit needs, so things we need to have before we can focus on anything else. At the top of our hierarchy are the self-actualization needs, and that is when in this model, people start focusing on themselves. Now, going back to my conversation with my guests, I noticed that people who are much further in their career are putting a lot of emphasis on defining success as something that involves a certain level of self-actualization, whether it is control about their time, doing something they're passionate about, or spending more time with their family, cementing their legacy. The themes are clearly themes connected, as I said, to self-actualization. At the same time, the people who describe having this type of goals also acknowledge that we're able to focus on this type of self-actualizing needs and goals because they had satisfied all the deficit needs at their stage. Obviously, they were not using Maslow language, but all they said they were in a stage in their life where the basic needs had been satisfied. And in some way, this is similar to what happened to me. 
At some point in my career, I decided that maximizing my earnings was not what I wanted to work towards. I admit that I am lucky because by the time I made that decision, I was in a position that allowed me not to maximize my earnings. And that may not be the case for everyone. So after a lot of thinking, my current definition of success is based in three things. First of all, at the core of what success is to me is the idea of being in control. In control of how I spend my time, how much time is spent between work and my personal time. This has led me to a situation where I am doing only entrepreneurial things and where the ultimate decisions rest with me. I have no bosses and that works for me. As it relates to work, control also means being in control of the type of work I do and specifically being in control of the day-to-day -day activities that I do, which includes also being in control of what I don't do. At this point in my life, I am sharing my professional time between three different endeavors. This podcast, my executive coaching practice, and Coology, a marketing services firm that I started last year with my partner, Kat Coology. At the outset of our partnership, we've been very clear with each other about what each one of us is willing to do and not what to do. That conversation informs how we share responsibility among us and how we manage the firm. A very important aspect of control in my professional world is also being in control of who I do this work with, whether it is clients or my work partners. As a matter of fact, the motto of Coology is good work with good people. All of these elements of how I think about my work also drive business goals for all the businesses that I'm in. There's a level that is enough to satisfy my basic needs. Any growth beyond that point must align with all the other needs. And if it doesn't, I'm okay to pass on it. So on the control front, success to me is to be able to maintain control in all of those areas. The second element of success is to always be in a place where I keep learning, whether it is in my work world or in my personal world. This dictates the type of work that I do. For instance, podcasting was completely new to me three years ago and it dictates how I spend my time outside of work. Right now, all of my personal learning time is dedicated to becoming a better guitar player. Finally, success to me is having a positive impact of the world, even if it's on a small scale. And right now, a lot of that happens in the way that Kat and I are building our firm and the values we try to run it by. I share my definition of success with you because I wanted to give you a practical example of how I use the construct of the external definition versus internal definition of success and the idea that your career follows a pattern that is similar to the Maslow hierarchy of needs to create my success values. So if you stuck with me up to this point, I would encourage you to do a little exercise over the next week or so. Take some time and reflect about how much of your current definition of success and the goals that you're setting for yourself for this year are really true to you and how much of them are based on the external factors that we've talked about before. If you find out that you're out of balance and you wanna align your goals more on your own definition of success, on the values that are really true to you, be confident. In the long run, making those changes will ultimately be really beneficial to you. At the same time, I'm aware that making those changes may feel difficult and maybe impossible right now. So I also want you to think about where you are in terms of your overall hierarchy of needs. How much of your basic and psychological needs have you fulfilled so far with your career? And more importantly, what are the degrees of freedom that you have to make the changes? This reflection will help you do a couple of things. From a practical level, if you're not in a place where you're able to make big changes immediately, understanding what needs you need to meet 
will help you to set a map to help you get there and maybe take smaller steps and small changes that will still have a beneficial effect without creating too much risk. On a personal level, when you're able to see some of the need-driven circumstances that are impacting your ability to set and strive for your ideal goals, hopefully you will be able to recognize that you have actually already achieved more success than you thought. And that will have a positive impact on your ability to make more progress towards your long-term success. Thank you for listening to me up to this point. Hopefully some of these reflections are sparking some good thinking on your part. Now I'm gonna metaphorically turn the microphone to some of my guests and share a few of the answers that they gave me when I asked them about success. I'm gonna start with my friend Armi Mulavi, who described in a very practical way the process he followed to balance his needs and start heading towards a vision of success that was more in line with his personal goals. Well, thank you for the perspective. I'm gonna take it back a little bit to you and ask, you know, over the years, how has your definition of success changed? It's it's a it's a funny question, Dino, because about it was all triggered by uh, an appoint me hiring a financial advisor. I, I hired him. He said, "Great, give me all your revenue income." I gave it to him. He asked me for my budget. You know, and I'm pretty fastidious with numbers. So, you know, I filled out this sheet, lickety split in five minutes. And he called me and was like, where's the 60 grand? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you told me you make this much money and you told me you spend this much money, but there's $60,000 that's missing. Where's the money? And so I, for like three months, like maniacally tracked everything in Mint, everything. And we got to this place where we knew two numbers. How much do we need to live? mortgage, rent, car, food, et cetera, the kids' school, whatever. And then how much do we need to live well? Um, you know, unfortunately for us at the time that that second number, we were making more than that. And the minute we realized that, the unending need to get promoted, to excel, to, you know, scramble up to the top, just started to fall by the waysides. You know, I love what I do and I still work as hard as I ever did. But this angst or this like this sense of like, if I don't get promoted, I'm not succeeding, right? Immediately went away. What more do I want? Like, I have a great life. I wake up in the morning. I go for a run. My kids are there when I come back. We have a lovely home. They go to school. Why do I need to live in this world where like, if I don't get promoted again, I'm all of a sudden not a success. And the minute I had that like moment of clarity, I just went to work. And I just did my job <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> like it was the most simple thing ever. Like go to work, leave. Every six months I had my review. Armin, you're doing great. These are the things to work on. Great. And I kept doing it. And I know I'm trying to make it a little bit, a little bit lighthearted, but that's what it was, you know? And so now, you know, you fast forward to where I am now, like, you know, I left Hilton right before the pandemic in a funny twist of fate just because I was traveling too much and I was away from my kids too much. And, you know, I decided to go freelance and I have the great fortune of having clients that engage me intellectually. They're really nice. Like here's a key insight, right? When the number of jerks in your life plummet, your quality of life goes up. You know, I've turned down gigs from people that I just don't think you're nice. And I know again, right, like that sounds really silly, but I'm happy. 
You know, like I love, I can genuinely say like, I love interacting with my clients. They're lovely people, you know? And so, and they're grateful and they're thankful. And at three o'clock today, when my kids get home, I can, you know, block my calendar and go play with them. You know, tomorrow I can block, you know, four to four fifteen to do mise en place for dinner and prep the steak, <laughs> you know, and fif- spending 15 minutes at four o'clock. I promise you, your dinner is going to be incrementally you know, exponentially better if you just spend that time (laughs) or even like the silly things like going to Home Depot on Wednesday at 10 a.m. is way better of an experience than Saturday morning at 9 a.m. You know, you're just like, oh, like this is lovely. Is my income going to skyrocket? Probably not. Am I, you know, could I have made more if I stayed in corporate or made more if I stayed at the agency? Probably, but I'm making more than that bigger number. And so... It's okay. Yeah, it is okay. <laughs> Next, we're going to hear from Francesca Gargaglia, CEO and founder of Amity. As a founder, obviously, she needs to think about measure of success, both for her company and for herself. And this is what she had to say. When you started the company, what was your measure of success for the company? I think everybody had a different one, probably. We have always been very ambitious. This is for sure from day one. We have never, you know, we never started the company with the goal of, okay, let's try to get to a 2 million valuation and get acquired or uh, let's try to, you know, find a way to to make an exit fast. The goal for us has always been, oh, we want to build this product. We want to have an impact. We want to change the world. So we have always been dreaming very big. So I think that the measure of success for us at the beginning, the first KPI was seeing our product in use and seeing the impact that was having on the life of people. So that for us was the first you know, moment of, okay, we are proud of what we are building because we sell technology. And when we saw for the first time that technology being used for you know, developing products that were having an impact on people's lives, we understood that we, are, we all love what we do and that's what we want to keep doing. So that's probably the measure of success, the amount of people that we can impact with the product that we are building. And how do you measure success on a personal basis? Wow, this is a good question. I never thought about that. Probably in terms of happiness, satisfaction. So I like the idea of you know going to bed every evening and thinking that I'm satisfied with the way I spend the day with what I did during my work life, my work day. So I think I measure success in terms of personal fulfillment and satisfaction. And and a big part of that for myself, it's really never stop learning. So I'm always on a learning journey and I love to uh, learn something new at least every quarter. So when I look back, I, I want to see that there is, you know, a growth curve and that I'm evolving as a human being and also as a leader. So probably this journey is my personal definition of success. When Francesca talked about measuring impact for a company, she had a very practical and tactical definition of what that meant. And that is the same for Sean Fay, who also talked about measuring the success of his company in terms of the impact that it had. How has your personal definition of success changed over time? I think it's still the same. It's about being able to walk away and have the business keep growing. Well, I guess there's a, like making an impact, making an impact is pretty important. 
our business has dramatically reduced the amount of people driving in their cars and dramatically reduce the time to hire someone. And when putting these people in certain key jobs makes a huge difference for those organizations. Like one of our clients is the Coast Guard and we reduce their time to hire from 200 days to 40 days and they're saving hundreds of thousands of dollars and people are having better quality of life because they don't have to work as much. And like these impacts that we're doing, we did one process with our product, like one job that we ran and we saved cutting 50,000 trees with this one job that we did. They told, oh, by the way, we saved 50,000 pieces of paper for one job that was run in our product. It was like three trees, actually. I Googled it. But it's, it's just like these little things. And, and one thing that I think that with you know humans and, and what we're doing here on this planet is that there's only a very small percentage of people who move the needle and have the human race progress. And, I, and if there's anything that I would tell someone is do a business that makes progress. Like games, I played it a lot when I was a kid, but there's no evolution of our species by playing a game. You know, and if there's any other business that I thought of that I would do that would push that more is like, I wish Bitcooter could do more of that. And I'm jealous of Elon Musk that he can push the needle more for all of us. And but that's one person doing so much change for everyone else around the world. And it's, if everyone did one one millionth of that, just pushing the progress forward, we would all have better lives. You know, some people are scared of technology, but more medicine, better food, less people hungry, like progress brings better for the world, you know? And I know capitalism isn't always the best system, but it's better than anything else we've found. And it, since its inception, it's been doing really good. So, you know, generally speaking, and if more people got on that bandwagon in their businesses, is your business making an impact or is it just oh, we invented a game or it's a new clothing line or da, 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 da. It's like, try to do something that's going to move the needle. That's kind of what my definition of success is now. Another guest, Kathy Dyer, gave us her definition of success within more of a corporate environment where she's leading the team and working for a business and also a personal definition centered around matching your skills with your passions. You know, obviously you've had a lot of success in your career, but, you know, as we progress in our career and life, maybe the measure of success changes. So what is success to you and how do you measure it? Mm-hmm. You know, success for me is um, really two things. Um, have, has my tenure in a role resulted in progress for the business? Has it resulted in progress for the people I've been entrusted with? And so I look back and that's how I measure, is the business better off than it would have been? Has it grown? Has it increased profitability? And are people um, hitting their stride and, and knowing that they can take on bigger and bigger or different, as the case may be, roles, are they more confident? Are they better leaders of others? So that's really the way I look at it, the people dimension and the business dimension, and we both know they go hand in hand. And what about like just in general and, you know, overall within your personal life and and, and just like, you know, if you're, if you're people that are marking their 
their life trajectory, et cetera, and thinking what's important and, and how do you measure and how do you keep yourself honest to your goals? You know, my, um, my thought on that, and I guess it's true also, even maybe I'll just use the example of my daughters, is what I think of as successful and how I measure it is we all need to chart the course that brings us joy, that we are able to do well, because that's when we're happy versus when we're striving to be something we're not or to and to feel. So I always encourage people and my daughters say it to me all the time. They say, mom, you taught us, you be you. You wanted a corporate business career. One of my daughters is a designer, uh, an interior you know, designer. She does home renovations. I could never do that. So they've chosen their path based on what makes them happy, what they do well. So um, I think what, what I think of is don't prejudge. Um, choose the thing that brings you joy that you do well, and therefore you'll be satisfied. And just be true to it and own it, whatever it may be. That's very true. Someone else who talked about success in terms of having impact on the people around him in a corporate setting and in life in general is David Adelman. What is important to you and how do you define and measure success in a broader term? I think for, for me, one of the most important things success has been about ha, has been helping people around me move forward um, in various ways. There's lots of different ways that people around me have moved forward. I take energy from that. There's a downside to it too, because there are people who don't want to move forward, who can't, you can't move forward. Sometimes peers of mine or bosses of mine who are where they are, and they're not going forward. They have their agenda and they're locked into it. And that's my kryptonite. Um, that I just, oh my God, I can't believe I got to just accept that. It is hard. It kills me. And I feel like it's successful when we are, when I'm, and usually it's a we, we're making something happen and people feel they're growing from it. And usually from that, a success is where I've learned something. I've gotten something out of it by working together. It's probably why I was in client service for so long, because I like helping people. I'm back now in client service after being in the CMO role. I'm doing executive advisory work. You know, to me, success is where I can make a difference for somebody. It's on a bigger and bigger scale. And look, there's no doubt I've been ambitious. It's not only, you know, in terms of just simply helping for helping's sake. Uh, it's been doing so on a bigger stage, on, you know, for broader impact. And definitely I take energy and I'm glad I have the opportunity to do that. But it still comes down to helping people. Fabulous. So going back to more of the entrepreneur standpoint, Jake Hermes and I talked about her vision for the business and then followed with sort of like her personal goals, but led to an interesting discussion about her personal goal for mental health and how that gets rolled out through the way she runs the business. Looking at different measures of success than the ones that, you know, in the sort of market, marketing, martech, it used to be building unicorns. I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on what you'd like to do? 
I would like to grow it and get it to a place where it's being largely managed without me. Because right now, I'm still very in day-to-day management of... I don't work with clients and I don't manage most of the team, but I still am very involved in like, okay, if we need to do resource planning or capacity planning or whatever it is, I'm in it. I would love to get to a place where I am not in the day-to-day and I can back out of that a little bit. And I think that only comes as we grow. Do I want to run a hundred million dollar agency? Not really. And I don't think we will get to that size, but I'd love to get us to eight, 10 more. Again, I, I think everyone thinks that they have to have like this, you know, like really serious plan. Our like big goal is 30 by 30. So 30 by 2030, which is a freaking crazy goal, but we'll see. Maybe we can get there. Well, you got nine years to go. So <laughs> on a personal level, how do you define success for yourself? For me, if I feel good on the day on a daily basis, then I feel like I am successful. Like taking care of myself, sleeping enough, getting my workouts in, not feeling I don't want to feel stressed. I've gone through so many periods where I feel stressed on a regular basis and I don't want to feel like that. And so if I'm like waking up and I'm happy and I'm going to bed and I feel calm and my kids are well taken care of and I'm spending time with them, great. I think I think I'm living my best life right now, thankfully. But that said, I mean, I go through all these periods where it's like the stress starts to get to you and winter is now coming. It's getting dark out at like 4 p.m. That gets to me too. So I don't know. I keep a really close tabs on my mental and physical health because I think that if those two are where I want them to be, then that is success to me. How important is that a part overall of the culture that you're setting within the company? I think it's important and I get on some of my people about how they take care of themselves. Like my head of sales doesn't sleep enough. And whenever he's like really stressy, I'm like, have you been sleeping? Because I like I see sometimes that he is able to take on more with a really good attitude and sometimes really little things get to him. And I think that's everyone, right? We're all like toddlers when we don't sleep enough. We're just like a puddle and you can't deal with anything when you're not taking care of yourself. So it definitely does integrate into the culture. I think I would like to look at all of my team members as whole people. So like we're not work robots. There's really... Especially now, we don't even report to an office anymore. There is absolutely no separation of work and your personal life. And if something really terrible is going on in your personal life, you're not going to show up like happy and bubbly at work. That's just not how it is. So we track capacity from our or with our team just on a well, we have like a you know a very detailed system, but we ask everyone every single week, how are you feeling about your capacity? And it's a red, yellow, green system. Red is like, I'm overwhelmed, I'm over capacity. Yellow, I'm full, I'm good. Green is like, I'm great, I could take more work. And a lot of times, how a team member is feeling doesn't always align with how much work they have. You know, like it could be something else that's going on where they're not feeling well, or they went on vacation last week and they're really overwhelmed. Or I think half the time it's like a mental game as much as it is as you know, like showing up and doing physical work. So I try to incorporate that into the company. We talked about the fact that the definition of success changes along our career. It starts with meeting very basic needs and may end up 
with something more self-fulfilling and you know much bigger mission and impact driven. And a great example of this is Jason Greer. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share what was your definition of success when you started out and how has that changed now? Man, I love these questions, Dino. Um, my level of success for when I started back in 2005 was, man, if I can pay my mortgage three months in a row, then I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. That was my level of success. The goal was, and the hope was, one day I was going to be able to make $160,000. And I'm saying that because I can see the vision board that I created for myself in 2005. I was like, you know, I had a piece of eight by 11 piece of paper. And I remember cutting out what was a check. And, you know, I hand wrote the check, colored it and everything, put up on this vision board and the check said $160,000 because that was going to be my measure of success. Paying my mortgage three months in a row with no issues and having a $160,000 check. Fast forward to 2022, and I would say that my version of success is well beyond the $160,000, but also it's this feeling that I'm doing something good. It's almost cliche to say that where they say, if you're doing something you love, then it never feels like work. I would say that in my case, it's actually true. You know, I'm known as the employee whisperer in my industry, and I didn't give myself that nickname. It was a client of mine who gave, gave me that nickname, and it just sort of caught on like wildfire. So that's what people call me is the employee whisperer. So I'm brought in these situations in which the house is literally burning down. Employees are in an uproar. Management's in an uproar. Things are going nuts. You know, the company's trying to do all these online surveys, but people don't trust the surveys. And you have all these folks in the C-suite who are legitimately pulling their hairs out because they have no idea how to stem the issues. That's where I come in. That's where my consultants come in. And over the course of time, we will effectively boil down what are the core issues. But more importantly, we will help to come up with recommendations that are driven 100% based on the feedback that we're getting from the people who are doing the work every single day. I'm only bringing that up, Dino, because I'm legitimately living my mission every single day. So my version of success went from just wanting to pay my mortgage and have $160,000 to the money is great. But the feeling of pride, the feeling of satisfaction because I feel like I'm serving something bigger than myself, that today is my definition of success. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I've only known you about half an hour, 25 minutes. And it's very clear to me that a lot of what is driving you is the idea of fulfilling a mission. So what is your mission? Oh, man, I have a couple of missions, right? So there's a couple of different buckets, my brother. One of those missions is... I want to create positive workplaces, whether that's a virtual workplace, because I know we're going to the hybrid system now based on COVID, whether that's a virtual place, whether that's a physical place, I want to create positive work environments so that employees feel respected and recognized and so that companies can continue to pump out massive productivity in ways because it benefits all of us, right? I would say the second bucket for me is I want to eradicate racism in our lifetime. I was a victim in 1991. My father was a, a grade school principal. My father was a grade school principal. My mother was a nurse, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And my father was hired on position as a principal at a grade school in Dubuque, Iowa. We had no idea that our family, because my mother and I would eventually move there in 1992 because my parents weren't going to take me out of my senior year in high school. And I'm dating myself. I'm 48 years old. 
um, but I was 17 years old in 1991. And so we moved my father to Dubuque, accepted the job, and we didn't know that our family was the first family to come to Dubuque under the constructive integration plan, whereby they were going to recruit over 100 Black families into Dubuque over the course of 10 years. So, you know, you're basically talking about forced integration. And then as a result of forced integration, there were people within the city who felt like these Black folks, meaning us, were going to come and take their jobs, going to do all the things that they had heard Black people from the stereotypes that are associated with Black people were going to do to their community. So the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, came in. They organized a um, group called the National Association for the Advancement of White People. And they started to burn crosses literally in protest of my father accepting that position at Irving Elementary School in Dubuque, Iowa. And then they decided to personalize it by burning additional crosses in protest of my mother and myself. And so you go through that kind of thing, Dino, at 17 years old, where I'm still trying to figure out who I'm taking to homecoming, let alone dealing with the fact that there is a group of people who don't know me, don't know my father, but they are helping on making sure that we don't move into their community. When the reality is my father only came to that community because he wanted to educate kids. He didn't care they were white. He didn't care they were black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever the case might be. He just had a love for educating kids. And so that has really fueled me. I'm 48 years old, just as I stated. You know, that has really fueled me in terms of wanting to create the type of life and the type of environment in which people don't have to go through the same things that I went through, the things that my father and my mother went through and their parents and so on. So I have a couple missions. Another topic that we discussed is how in the early phases of the career, people may be motivated by external validation and then that changes as they progress and achieve some of the outside markers of success. And this is some of what John Darby Shire talked about. How has your definition of success changed over the years and what is success to you now versus what it was maybe, you know, when you started Archer or when you even started at Ernst & Young? You know, early in your career, I think you're motivated a little bit by wanting to be successful and not knowing if you're going to be successful, right? So you've got, you're always pushing and you're worried, you know, can I get to that point? And each person maybe has, has different thoughts about what successful kind of means, you know, to them uh, at that point. As I get older, I, I don't, personally, I, I feel like I, I've been successful enough for me. It's not about the success. I don't have to tell you how great I am. Maybe when I was 30, I would maybe worry a little bit more that you liked me and felt that I was successful. Now, I, I want you to like me still, but I, I don't have this need to try to convince you how great that I might be in my role. And as a, you know, a business owner, uh, you know, you're, you're still driven by revenue and customers are the two biggest things that kind of dictate the success of the company. So I don't think you can ever get around that. But culture and just work-life balance and just working with fascinating people. I want to work with the people that I want to work with at this point in my career. And I have that luxury a little bit. So we're pretty picky on who we hire and who we contract with. That's there where maybe I didn't have that luxury, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Hopefully, does that answer the question? I'm going to leave you with Christina Wallace. She's a professor at Harvard Business School, author of The Portfolio Life. And she's been an entrepreneur. She worked in corporate environments. And she's now teaching a, an entrepreneurship class at Harvard Business School. And what you will hear in this conversation are a lot of the themes that you've heard me mention as I think about my own goals. Um, she talks about 
talking to her students about the goals that they want to set up for their startups, what is important to her right now, and then dealing with some of the external pressure from the environment that she had and realizing that what other people saw as success was not a good fit for her. As you will see, it's very much connected to some of the things that I've talked about in my own definitions of success. It's a broader conversation than just the risk management, right? It's like understanding why you even want to get into becoming a startup because startup life is not here I am, Mark Zuckerberg, billionaire. That's not the reality for the majority of the founders. And not everyone wants that life. I mean, this is a conversation I have with my students so often. I think we we put up certain founders or certain companies, put them on covers of magazines, or we hold them up as models for people to follow. But we're not talking about maybe the trade-offs or the other opportunities that aren't available to them, right? This is a very specific model of leadership and of business building and of success. And if you want it, then great. You have some examples that you can follow their playbook. But you don't have to be a public company. You don't have to be a gazillionaire. You don't have to be the founder that takes the company all the way through IPO and still runs it 20 years later. Um, you can have a really great life with a $5 million profitable business that you own 100% of, right? And maybe you'll never be on the cover of Fortune magazine. But other than framing that for your wall, what does that get you either, right? Like. Like to your point of you're feeling like maybe a failure at one point for having wasted your HBS, you know, uh, springboard, like springboard to what, what do you want in your life? I think there's just so many examples of people saying, well, success is blank. So I have to aim for that because I am someone who succeeds. And that's sort of that last bucket of failure that a lot of people, myself included, struggle with the most, which is the psychological aspects of failure. I am someone up until the point my company failed, had never failed at anything. And it was becoming such a self-fulfilling prophecy that I would not take risks or not try things that I thought I might be bad at. Because that wasn't part of who I am. That wasn't my identity. And Quincy really was the first time that I just like face flat on the floor, just failed. <laughs> and I realized I needed to practice being bad at things if I wanted to be able to keep going down this path as an entrepreneur and as someone who built something that wasn't a guaranteed outcome. How is your definition of success and what you wanted for yourself as an entrepreneur changed over time? Let's say before you made the decision, you know, right now you're teaching, you have other priority temporarily. But how has that definition of success changed? I mean, I think at the beginning, uh, like many entrepreneurs, there's sort of several layers to what success means, right? That on the one hand, it's I want to build something that I believe should exist in the world. And seeing women wear the clothes that I made, seeing them feel better about themselves and, and helping them feel successful, becoming a household name, right? Becoming a brand that everyone has heard of. And certainly, the financial, you know, implications, personal and uh, and otherwise that come with that success, right? I, I never wanted to be a gazillionaire, but not having to 
count my pennies and keep track of receipts would certainly be, you know, a nice level of financial comfort that I could call successful. And I think over the 10 years or so that I built uh, various companies, that certainly the financial aspect has always been something, especially not coming from resources and being someone who does support my family. There is a minimum level of financial success that I have to be able to meet. But as I got older and, and built out more of my life, I got married and I knew I wanted a family. Control over my time became one of my primary metrics of success. I am not afraid of working hard and I am very busy, <laughs> often, maybe more busy than I should be. But as long as I am the one setting that schedule, I don't resent it. And it allows me to have all the pieces of my life. I can be there for bedtime. I can write a book and do all the things, right? As long as I'm in the driver's seat, that is success for me. When I feel like I am being run ragged on someone else's schedule is when it doesn't work for me anymore. And you couldn't pay me enough money. There's, there's literally no dollar amount that you could pay me to work those type of hours on someone else's schedule. And I think that is a, a key consistent trait I have found among entrepreneurs. That resonates so much. Was there a moment when you felt your definition of success was maybe driven more by external factors and then it transitioned more to internal? Yeah, I would say my two years at Harvard Business School were probably the two that I felt an external definition of success take over for me. Um, this is a magical place that can can change trajectories for for everyone who comes through its doors. And <laughs> it's not a but, it's an and. It has a very strong culture for good and for bad. You can come in being an incredibly oddly shaped puzzle piece, as I was, and somehow by the end of your first semester, you're all wearing a gray suit going out for consulting interviews, right? Like, I don't know how it happens. It's in the water, I think. And I am very grateful for my time at BCG. I consider it in some ways almost like a finishing school on my MBA. It made me actually do the things that I've been talking about in the classroom for two years. But... Anyone who knows me can tell I was never meant to be a management consultant, certainly not for more than a year, a year in about four days, I think I made it. It's just not who I am. And it was hard here at Harvard because it was such a prescribed path with such clear prestige that everyone valued and understood. And the alternative was so hazy and unknown that turning down an easy, obvious path for this validation in favor of this like, you know, hazy forest without even a headlamp, it felt like a, a decision that no one would make. And so I walked, you know, down this consulting path just long enough to graduate and start the job and then realized like, oh dear, I have made a huge mistake. And to their credit, they were so supportive when I was like, I need to leave and go start a company like this is it's not you and it's not me it's just we're not doing this
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and then tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. And hopefully all these little snippets will make you want to go and check out some of the older episodes. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. Make sure you come and find the website of the podcast. It's al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions and Fullcast. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, a song you may have heard before if you listen to the podcast, a song that I almost think of as my own manifesto. Here is Susan Cattaneo and the Bottle Rockets singing work hard love harder enjoy and pay attention to the words father time's got a job to do punches in his time card that he's coming for you For that nine to five You should be praying to St. Valentine Forget the thing